a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Bronze Age Marvel writer and artist Bob Layton, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melvick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Malnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with Eddie. I want you to do the honors because I, you know, I set up this interview because I'm like, you know what, Eddie, I, we've got some bucket list items on here. And the person joining us on this episode is someone that's very special to you. It's a mutual bucket, perhaps. I mean, you know, this is probably the first I'm putting a bucket list together. A veteran in the comic book industry and someone I've met on a couple of times, and I have 18 autographs, including maybe this 11 by 17 of Demon in a Bottle. It's it's writer and artist Bob Layton. Welcome, and thank you. Thank you, Peter and Eddie. Appreciate it. Great intro, guys. I'm blushing already. Oh, well, sitting down would be good, too. So and, it, this thing off the bat is from November of 2014, just so you know how far back uh, this kind of goes. Okay. Well, what's, what's funny to me is over the years, one of the things about Eddie as a comic book aficionado, Eddie has a vast knowledge of comics. Sometimes he'll discount himself. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't. But then when I pull up like a, a piece of Iron Man art or a, you know the art of a character, nine times out of ten, the man is pretty damn successful at identifying them. And the one that you know I told you in our initial email correspondence is, he can tell your art just by looking at it instantaneously. It's like it is one of the coolest talents I've ever seen someone have in the realm of comics. Well, the, it's cool. Most most of the, uh, the, us in the business, we other creators can tell each other's work pretty pretty easy. So you just basically have inherited one of our normal superpowers. It's innate, maybe I don't know. And it's it's something like no, it's in Ed. Oh oh oh, gotcha. Okay, it's no, it's just Ed. something. It's just something, Bob, that uh, certain things just stand out over time, over the years, because I'm collecting from the age of 10, and I'm in my 50s now. And, you know, my heyday was really the 80s, and I know you were right there, whether it was Iron Man, uh, Incredible Hulk, and uh, the Hercules miniseries that I've got you to autograph and so on. And there's some things just stand out. I'm like, wait, I think I recognize that. And it's just a matter of, like, I think when we actually first started this podcast, where on the opening pages of whatever comic it was, well, particularly Marvel, you'd see the stable, this the consistent list of names that were just there, and you're like, oh, yeah, I recognize that name, I recognize that name. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head who wrote, who drew, who embellished, or anything like that, who finished. But, you know, you're up there for me as one of my top well, guys. So. You have to remember, too, that in... In the let's say the Bronze Age when I started, right? Uh, it, it, most people didn't care about who drew it or who. I mean, they didn't think that deeply into it. They, they were so into the characters and the stories, and and then we, we kind of almost preferred it that way. The whole kind of star system was something that came about a little bit later, you know, as they you know became higher collectibles and stuff. But uh, when we were just selling on the newsstands, it was just people didn't know what they liked. They just knew they did. You know, and they would they would come back for more. Uh, 
that sort of being able to discern the uh, the, the writer or the penciler or the inker, that kind of thing, came, it, it started around the time I got into the business. But uh, uh, before then, it was just like, I just love the X-Men. I don't know why, but it's like, it's so good. You know, mm-hmm. and I can't wait for the next one. And in some ways, you know, it should be that way. I mean, Carrie, the story should always be before the creators, you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, because that was our job is to create an entertainment. And, you know, when it comes to the realm of comics, obviously we all have our origin stories of how we got into, you know, whether it being as a fan or a creator. With you, what was your origin story with getting in as a fan as well as a creator? <laughs> well, it was kind of both. Um, mine is kind of a unique story. Uh, I uh, started publishing fanzines w- uh, back in the early 70s uh, from my little apartment in Indiana. And, uh, I, well, actually, um, it started out as a comic catalog. I sold comics on the side, you know, when I was doing my Joe jobs and stuff, right? And uh, I ran in, uh, by happenstance, I met Roger Stern, who also was the only other fan that lived in Indianapolis, apparently. <laughs> and um, he was working at a radio station, so two of us got together, and slowly my little catalog turned into a fanzine, and he, he happened to know this Canadian artist up uh, uh He'd been in contact with called named John Byrne, who was who's cranking out some really interesting, you know, fan art. And uh, so we all kind of got together and started publishing fanzines. Uh, we did this little digest book called the uh, uh, CPL, Contemporary Pictorial Literature. And that became almost like a who's who of comics now. I mean, our, our uh, regular writers on it were like Steve Grant and Michael Uslan, the Batman producer, and... Uh, uh, Bob Hall came out of it, Don Mate, the painter. Uh, I mean, go down the list, it's as long as your arm uh, of uh, people that wound up uh, coming out of that thing. But what I would do every month, or every, it was bi monthly, I would send 25 copies up to DC and Marvel and Charlton at the time that was around, uh, uh, hoping somebody would look at it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, what happened was uh, uh, one of the guys that worked at Charlton was a guy named Bill Pearson, who I knew through Don Newton, and he had showed my work to Wally Wood, and Wally Wood said, you know, uh, if uh, this kid uh, ever came out east, I could probably take him on as an assistant. So with 200 bucks in my pocket and a Galaxy 500, uh, Galaxy 500 station wagon, I drove to the east coast. I uh, had thrown a con in Indianapolis in 75, so I knew, like, Al, Al Milgram and Walt Simonson and a few people. I crashed on their floors until I could find an apartment in Connecticut and go to work for Woody. So, And that's kind of how I got started, working as a background assistant to Wally Wood. And then once Woody retired, I went to work for Dick Giordano, but I also unknown, uh, in Continuity Studios. I worked for Dickie up there, so... I had two of the greatest mentors of all time, you know. Uh, I was very fortunate in that regard. What was the biggest bit of advice that Wood gave you? Um, <laughs> well, this is the old classic line. Never draw anything you can trace. Never trace anything you can cut out and paste up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it holds. Uh, Woody was, a, was quite a character. I mean... I came in at the, you know, the, uh, 
as he was winding down his career, unfortunately his health was starting to fail. But uh, we did publish a couple of fanzines together while I was uh, you know, working as his assistant. We did the, the last issue of Wits End, uh, issue 10, and uh, uh, Heroes, Inc., number two. Um, but uh, his advice, he wasn't really one of those kind of guys that mentored you in, in a sense of uh, training steer you toward life it was just kind of he was a great teacher without a doubt i mean you think about it wally wood really created uh, what i would say is the uh the uh, 20th century uh inking for reproduction style you know i mean uh, he uh, he up until that time you know uh inking was really dependent on the the ability of the penciler and there was a lot of guys who were just you know did one way or another and there was like scratchy kind of inking and we're you know but Woody kind of simplified and everything and boiled everything down to its common denominator and, and really came up with I think was what became the modern style of inking for a long time I mean, definitely most of the guys that were at Marvel were imitate started out imitating Wally Wood to some degree you know everybody did I mean you know uh, in the industry he was uh he was practically deified but uh I had always been a big fan of Dick Giordano, so going to work for Dickie uh, was uh, uh, that was the real learning experience. Uh, he he mentored me right. I mean, he, my entire life, right up until he died. Uh, uh, you know, what about eleven years ago, twelve years ago? Uh, we had always we stayed close, you know. But he he guided me through my entire career, so um, he was uh, he was an amazing man. No doubt about it. So I was doubly blessed to have two of the the best in the business teach me. And one thing I want to go back with with uh, Wally Wood, you know, how many of those uh, twenty two panels did you see hanging around the uh, studio? Oh God! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Wood, Woody, like I said, he was a character. But that, you know, those twenty two panels is really uh, it's a true thing. You know, yeah. I mean, for the most part, I mean, that's what I mean breaking everything down to its common denominator. When you're starting out and you're struggling, Woody had a great way of just simplifying the process, you know, uh, that made it understandable, and very easy. Uh, Dickie was definitely more of a finesse artist, you know. I mean, he was, you know, just a beautiful uh, uh, inker. He could embellisher. I won't say inker. He was an embellisher because he could take some pretty awful stuff and make it look great, you know, uh, the funniest thing about uh, Woody that I learned was about Jack, inking Jack Kirby. As you guys know, you've probably seen from time to time, I'll find a Kirby pencil and I'll, I'll kind of update it and, and uh, embellish it, right? What, I, I always ask him about that because I remember uh, uh, some of the great stuff he did with Wally. In fact, the very first comic I ever read as a kid was Challengers of the Unknown. It was, it was Jack Kirby and Wally Wood. And, you know... He would like say blasphemous things like, you know, Jack's a really good storyteller, but he can't really draw for shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He says, yeah, he says, you know, his art, his art, his actual drawing wasn't very good. So Woody would take a needed eraser because Jack used a big number two pencil and kind of uh, engraves everything into the page. He'd take a number two eraser and erase all the, the top pencil off. And he would just think the, the bare bones layout. You know, uh, and and add real anatomy and everything to it. You know, that's why it always looks so different when Wally Wood inked him. You know, as opposed to anybody else. 
And, you know, when it comes to wood as well, also with the 22 panels, I'm curious for yourself, which is your go-to panel out of all those 22 that you gravitate to the most and enjoy the most from, you know, well, you know, I, I, it's been so long. I can't even remember them now, but I'm big on the silhouette. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Silhouette covers the multitude of sins, you know. And it adds a sense of you know noir, just ominousness. Yeah, to it. yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, he's it, not—he wasn't wrong. Yeah, I was going to say intentional ambiguity. Yeah, one hundred percent. Perhaps. Yeah. But, you know, you're asking me. Listen, Mister Peabody, you're asking me <laughs> to get a payback machine and go back fifty years. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, it's like uh, that's not the easiest thing to do. Well, Bob, so now where were you on? <laughs> Not too. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, like yeah. Uh, that's that's a that's a hell of a trip for me to do uh, on the spot here on your podcast. It's just such you a cool thing to be able to minutia. You know, uh, the interesting thing about Dick, you're asking me what I learned. You know, uh, I always tell this story because it, 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 it's really pivotal in my career in terms of reason why my career lasted, you know, 45 years or something. Um, I was on the train going into New York to Continuity Studios with Dickie. We both lived in Connecticut at the time. Uh, that's why it was, you know, after I had gotten done working for Woody and I worked with him, we went up there. And Dickie was sitting on the train, uh, you know, reading uh, uh, the New York Times or whatever, as he did, dressed in his suit or whatever, and little Bobby Layton next to him and I'm reading a copy of the Avengers or something right and I remember Dickie reaches over and pulls it out of my hand and looks at me well, you know lovingly of course but he looks at me and says I need to know what your intentions are and I, I looked at him puzzled and I go what do you mean he goes is this going to be your job or your hobby he goes because if it's going to be your hobby I can't teach you and if it, so it's going to be your job, you're going to have to find some other form of entertainment. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He goes, he goes here's the thing. He goes, I have a lot of belief in you. He goes, but I, 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 I've seen it happen. Those people who only get their inspiration from other comics never really develop into, you know, some, somebody that makes a difference. He goes, it's so important that you, you derive your, your inspiration from outside sources. Uh, yeah, I, I thought about it, you know, there in the ride home. And, you know, he was right. So uh, I actually got rid of my comic book collection the next week, you know. Uh, I, I know that's blasphemy for you guys out there. <laughs> but, uh, um, and he was right. You know, if you think about some of the seminal work that I've done over the years, and, you know, cont- you know it's like I always drew my inspiration from outside sources. And as a result, you know, you got Demon in a Bottle, which we're going to talk about later and stuff like that, because um, this was all a reflection of the things that were influencing me at the time. Um, and Dickie knew that. He was a wise man. He also taught me that, that I should learn the business of comics as well as the, the, the art of it, because uh, those people who survive are ones that understand the industry they work in. So even when I worked started working at Marvel on my own, I used to go up to the 11th floor all the time, which was the accounting floor, and talk to people and find out, well, how much does it cost? Why do we only get paid this? You know, who puts the staples in? You know, I mean, it's like um, I, I became very curious in, in, to how the whole industry itself worked, which, you know, kind of paid off later when it went over to start Valiant. But uh, we won't talk about Valiant because this is the Marvelous 
I mean, we we 100% can. I Honestly, I'm a big uh, Valiant fanboy. So. Yeah, no, but this is marvelous. <laughs> We're talking about Marvel stuff, right? We so, cover all ground. But, but what I'm saying is, uh, I also found out that Jim Galton, great guy, the president of the company, had a great, like, portable bar in his office. <laughs> there would be many, I'd be the only freelancer that would go have cocktails after hours with, with Jim Galton in his office. Um, but uh, I remember that fondly. Well, back again to the beginning, Bob. You can uh, confirm, deny, or take the fifth on this, uh, but some of the information I had was uh, something to do with John Romita, desperately you late for... Are you me? No. Take the fifth? Giving you, giving you the option, that's all, uh, in the Wayback Machine or whatever. But a very late issue of Iron Man and then saying, yeah, yeah, I can I can meet that deadline, and you just it was an utter fabrication. No, it, absolute true story. Okay, so you BS your way into work. That was that was good. And rather than go through the whole thing because it takes twenty minutes, you know, rather than eat up the whole podcast, just go look it up. In any interview I've done in the last couple of years, has it has that story in it. So uh, beautiful. Yeah, it's okay. absolutely true. Basically, I told John Romita that I could do a, I could ink a, a, a comic in three days because he was under the gun, and uh, since I knew everybody at Continuity at the time, and the, those guys, the guys at Continuity is like another. We were all background artists, but it was like me, Terry Austin, Joe Rubenstein, Bob Wyacek, uh, Bob McCloud. Okay, I mean, every inker that was worth his weight ever in the history of Marvel Comics used to work up there as an assistant. And I basically uh, orchestrated a, uh, for lack of a better term, a gangbang. And, uh, we, wow, that is we, the first time that term has been used on this show, by the way. <laughs> right, okay, but uh, in context to doing a comic. Uh, okay, uh, you know what I'm saying? And yeah, I, I turned it in. And uh, pretty pretty much without three days without sleep, uh, pretty sure that I was never going to get work again. But uh, as it turned out, John was impressed with the fact that, that I got it out. And it was, and it as Dickie used to say, it reached a high level of mediocrity. <laughs> and uh, no, because that's another one of the wise things he said. Because it used to really bug me that we just never have enough time to do what we're really capable of in comics. Yeah. And he says. You know, the thing about being a professional is that you strive to reach a high level of mediocrity in commercial art, which means on your worst day, when you have a headache, your back hurts, you know, the dogs are barking, you know, it's like the bills are due, you know, it's like you, you, your girlfriend's pregnant, whatever the hell it is, right? You can still sit at the drawing board and crank out something that is acceptable, you know? And he says that's really what you kind of have to strive for is a high level of mediocrity because you're never going to be able to take the time to sit down, especially in those days, you know, where deadlines really mattered. Because I got news for you. In the Bronze Age, you miss a couple deadlines, you're done. Mm. You just the rep, you get a rep for missing deadlines and nobody hires you. So they were incredibly strict back then. So it was like, yeah, he always – he always said, "Yeah, try to achieve a high level of mediocrity because it's commercial art. It's not, you know, it's not fine art. You know, you you, you do the best you, you can, and a professional can do something pretty decent looking, even though it's not his best work." Uh, I remember Paul Renault uh, was posted on Facebook a few a months ago or whatever that he was like really complaining that he never gets enough time to really do what he's wants to do and i i sent him that story i i wrote, I wrote him a back and i sent him that story about uh, dickie saying a high level of mediocrity because it's commercial art you know that's is what it is and back then especially we just didn't have the time to to, to uh 
you know, have angst over every line that we put down. Well, over here, at least with me in commercial radio, I and at least one of my coworkers kind of aspire to that same uh, phrase of the high level of mediocrity. So I, I feel the, sim- the sentiment. Yeah, no, Dickie was a brilliant man, you know, because, uh, I mean, all through my life, you know, I'd have these moments of, of a personal crisis or whatever where I was just like, uh, like I'm sitting there like, what am I doing? I mean, I'm not Jonas Salk. I'm not creating, like, you know, a cure for, for polio or something. I'm doing stupid comic books. It's like, how's this I'm doing anything? And then after we did Demon in a Bottle and we got literally bags of mail from people, some of the most heart-wrenching things in the world, and you realize that you know, he says, you never know what you do, how this is going to affect someone's life. He goes, something somebody did made you want to do this. Yep. You know, and he's like, it changed your life, right? He, I go, yeah, now think about it, yeah. He goes, but you never know. You don't, a lot of times you don't get the reward of knowing how you affected somebody. But obviously, that challenges the unknown story by Wally Wood and, and, and uh, uh, Jack Kirby was so, uh, so impactful to me that it made me want to devote my life to doing comics, you know, to being, being a storyteller. Uh, and that's always how I always saw myself as a storyteller, you know, I mean, more than an artist or a writer per se, you know, to me, it's always about story. Uh, I mean, I, I found out that it was just easier to get into comics as a, as an artist than it was as a writer, because <laughs> all the writers were like, uh, covetous about what they did and they could write a lot faster than we could draw. So, um, I always thought of myself as a writer who dabbled in art the other way around. Well, then, Bob, just to put it back into perspective and um, to point a reference, the, the issue in question, the first Iron Man, was that, was that number 91? Uh, well, I don't know what number it was because, you know, I, I just don't think about them. I think you're, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, let's say, let's say you're right, okay? Good, because 116 <laughs> was where the run started with you, and then, of course, we, yeah, do, we do get into it. When, when I came back from my year, my tumultuous year at D.C., <laughs> you know, and, uh, Iron Man was one of the three books they offered David and I as a team, and uh, um, it was a book they were going to cancel. That's how they tried out new guys, was basically uh, giving them books that were scheduled to be canceled and let them, because they couldn't, they figured out they couldn't ruin it. Because back then they would sign a contract for 12 issues with the mafia, right, to distribute on new mm-hmm. newsstands and stuff like that. And it took six months to get returns back to know what sales were. And Iron Man, which is kind of crazy now, because uh, uh, back then cancellation range was like 90000 mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, would be a super hit, right, you know, to, by today's standards. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, um, so they remember they offered us three books, and Iron Man was a, a book that I absolutely hated growing up. <laughs> I, so that's why I, I tell your listeners it's really good sometimes to hang on to your hate because I always thought that it was just terrible. It was never, you know, I mean, I was I used to draw my own Iron Man comics, you know, because I just thought they totally missed the mark, you know, with with the character and stuff because he, you know, he wasn't terribly powerful and he was. You know, I mean, I wanted to be Tony Stark. I thought that that would be a viable uh, uh, fantasy to, the, to live out. 
I didn't really want to be out here. <laughs> oh, well, hey, the Playboy billionaire, why not? Sure. Yeah, no, I'm saying that's an achievable fantasy, you know? Uh, but yeah, I'm saying, why isn't this guy a rock star? Why isn't he walk down the street? Why isn't he like Mick Jagger or something? You know what I mean? He didn't want to he pay an agent. <laughs> for Christ's sake, you know? And he's got like, uh, I mean, uh, he's like the coolest guy on the planet. He should be the coolest guy on the planet. But they never really, I mean, like with most glyphs, they, they really treated him as a cipher. And I, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves was one, it never looked like armor. And two, uh, it should be about Tony Stark, not about Iron Man. Mm. You know? So Dave, who was a, a, a died in the world <laughs> guy his whole life, had never really even read a Marvel comic, uh, I just said, let's take Iron Man. Trust me. Okay, we're going. And we asked, I said, I asked them, the editor, I said, can we change some stuff? And they're like, we don't care. We're going to cancel the thing, you know? And as they say, the rest is history. In six months, we had turned a book around in one of the, their top ten books. So, um, and once you did that, that kind of made my career because, you know, once you do something like that, you kind of make your bones, as the mob says, right? And because uh, nothing, nothing speaks better than sales. They love sales. Bottom line, so, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, but the time we left, it was selling like 400000 a month or something, you know, it went from 90000 to like four hundred. So it's like, uh, which is insane uh, when you think about it. But, you know, it, to me, it was just, uh, in fact, you know, uh, Doom Quest was actually a story that I had come up with when I was 11 years old that I did, did on notebook paper, you know, uh, because I was always such a big fan of King Arthur and everything. I wish I had kept that. It's cool to you see know, the evolution. Can you imagine? Now. It's, yeah, you know, it's cool to see the evolution of like you know somebody's childhood dream becoming a reality. You know, I mentioned it. To, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Never throw anything away because I mentioned it to Dave one, uh, during a plotting session, and he's kind of like, "I really like that," and I, and so it, it turned out to be one of the one of the seminal stories that we did in our two runs on the book. And you know, we meant we mentioned it earlier. You know, touched on it briefly. Demon in a bottle, and you had mentioned about how the reaction that story has with so many people, and to this know, day, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah the unofficial spokesperson for sobriety in the comic industry. A friend of the show, uh, he kicked off his sobriety the day he did it. He actually went to the local comic shop and bought a hardcover copy of Demon in a Bottle, and he had you to thank for that. I have so many stories like that. I still get them. I, I still get, in fact, I, right on my drawing board right now, I, I can send you a picture of a guy who had, I'm doing a, a demon in a bottle sort of homage or whatever for uh, uh, him who's, his father struggled with alcoholism. But the letters that we got were were just heart-wrenching. People say, I always thought my father is a, a villain and, and then I realized he has a disease and, and stuff. And, Again, you know, uh, it wasn't that we were trying to do anything controversial. We just wanted to get rid of the heart attack because it was ridiculous. They had heart transplants even back in the 70s, you know, and it just seemed like um, one of my pet peeves with him was that every time, every single issue, it's like just when he's ready to beat Ultimo or beat, beat the uh, Mandarin, he would have a heart attack. Mm. And I don't know anyone who's had 50 heart attacks and lived other than Dick Cheney, you know, so uh, it just it made no sense. You know, even in that time, for him to have the heart problem. And since we were creating this corporate world for Tony, this this, this empire that uh, he ruled like King Arthur, 
it made sense to give him some sort of internal weakness, you know, and uh, uh, that's kind of the evolution of that storyline. Um, but it, the the outpouring of emotion and letters from people, and as I said, I still get them to this day, to this day, and um, it's uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, you know, it was a personal story for me, so. Um, but at the, what, I, what I was getting to was that we we don't really innovate in comics so much as we re, are reflectors. We're mirrors of what's happening in society, mm. uh, you know. And at that time uh, that we did Demon in a Bottle, it was just when Betty Ford Clinic had opened up, and the first time people were talking openly about drug addiction and and, and alcoholism, you know. And, and and Demon in a Bottle was just a reflection of what that what was happening in society, being able to just talk about these things that have been swept under the rug for so long. Um, we always reflect what's happening out in, the, out in the world, right? More than anything. Uh, that's that's one of comics' jobs, is sort of to absorb what's happening in reality and in, in, uh, inculcated into our fiction. Well, as a result, an offshoot, perhaps, uh, or an evolution of that whole storyline, we get things like, or people like James Rhodes, War Machine, Justin Hammer and all the different Stark armors. Now those yep. came came out of um, uh, I don't know. Was there anything maybe? Let's say I'm thinking maybe you, were you in the military and that kind of influenced some of the differences in the armor? Or no, I'll tell you why. Uh, this this is an interesting story. All right, uh, I presume we have time, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't eaten up all our time yet. <laughs> okay. Um, I grew up in Indianapolis, which is the home of the Indy 500. So race cars and, and fast cars and stuff like that was all part of the mystique of that growing up in a very boring place of the world. Uh, so I used to draw cars a lot. I used to, like, do Ed, Big uh, Daddy Roth, you know, weirdo cars and stuff like that, you know. And uh, so drawing, you know, shiny metallic objects started at a very early age for me, right? But it also occurred to me, and, and this goes way back, okay, so I need Sherman and Mr. Peabody for this one, all right? <laughs> as, a, as a kid, I remember reading this Batman annual, and in it was the, one of the dumbest stories I've ever read. It's like the many, uh, the many costumes of Batman, and he, like, he had a green costume so he could hide in trees, and he had a white costume so he could hide in snow, and it's like, and I just remember like that saying, okay, that's really silly, all right? But in the case of Iron Man, because, you know, there's a big difference between a spaceship and a submarine, you know? There's a big difference between a stock car and a Formula One car. Mm. You know, it's like technology. It's just too simple that you can build one, one suit that would do everything, you know? And the idea of making him into the world's greatest engineer was also a matter that he would create armors that were specific to that. And that was something, I took that old Batman story and applied it to something where it would actually work. So that was the whole idea coming in was I wanted to start creating armors for specific functions. You know, that wasn't just the same thing. You just do everything. It's just too easy to have the DSX machina, and I didn't want that in Iron Man. I wanted the, I wanted the technology to have limitations and to be believable. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists 
And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And it's, you know, when you look at that, it's, it's funny because in like the 1990s, the 2000s, the term that, you know, eventually came about was toyetic. And you guys created toyetic armor for the character where you could do like 15,000 action figures and they'd all be different and all have their own purposes, you know? <laughs> and I don't get a sense for those. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say, though, is your favorite so of you? Oh, what's up? No, I just said it's so frustrating because they, they've done such an enormous amount of merchandising and I don't get a sense for any of that. What would you say, though, out of all of the armors, is your favorite one that you've worked on? Um, oh, God. And what is the silliest one? Well, I, I don't think any of them were silly, because I wouldn't have done them if they were silly. You know, if I thought they were silly. But, uh, um, no, I, I was fond of the space armor, just because it, from a practical standpoint, the, you, could, you could tell there was a huge difference. Because, one, I got rid of the mouthpiece, because it's just another hole you can get sucked out of in case of explosive <laughs> depression. Yeah. You know, uh, nothing would be worse than Tony Stark being liquefied through his mouthpiece, right? It'd be worse uh, for uh, Reed Richards if he was in the costume. He just get, he yeah. literally gets sucked out of the entire thing. Just yep. <laughs> yeah, no, but the, you know, the idea was that it was, it was bulkier because he was going to be weightless, so it didn't matter. You know, I mean, there was I it was really I designed it, engineered it to be specific. For space travel, right? So it altered the look considerably. People went nuts when, when the first time we did it. Was was that the first time that the color scheme also changed to the what was it the silver it's and like, crimson? Or was that was that the time that the first time that the uh, color scheme of the armor changed to what is it the no, silver no, and crimson? Silver, that was silver Saturnian, but that that also created a fervor as well. Yeah. Uh, that was done mo well. I wasn't working on the book at the time. They just asked me to redesign it because the sales were starting to sag again. And Mark Ruinwald came to me and asked me to redesign the armor. And one of the biggest problems with Iron Man was the fact that the, the coloring was a sixteen. It was a sixteen palette color palette, right? Very limited in what you could do. And one of the one of the first things I learned is that negative space always pops. So, you know, in this case, black, negative space being black or white. So it occurred to me, to, if we're going to make a change in the armor, let's make the first major color change in the armor since, you know, the original and, and make it white. So it, it, no matter what bad coloring it was behind, then it would still pop. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that was really kind of the, the origin of that. It was really the, the uh, way to combat the limited color palette. Space armor fashion sense like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I was, you know, I mean, the Civil Centurion armor has always been such a, uh, a controversial thing because, you know, I was against it with Mark because 
I, you know, because the rules of technology are always that things get more streamlined as they get uh, more evolved. And he wanted to make it bigger and bulkier, you know. Uh, but, you know, it was the first uh, offensive armor, you know. And most of uh, Tony Stark's uh, weaponry and everything was a, of the defensive nature. But he really wanted to create the, uh, something that was more of an offensive weapon. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I acquiesced to it. But, you know, I mean, kind of the fans, there are like two whole, like, groups of people, you know, out there, Iron Man fans who absolutely hate it and then absolutely love it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I, and bully for both of them. <laughs> you know, it's like, you, yeah, that's the whole point, right? Is, you know, if, if it's something I did what thirty years ago, and they're still they're still arguing about it, that's that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Now, when it yeah. comes when it came to the X series, the X Factor comic, were you uh, an original X Men fan? And you know, coming into that title, how was that for you? Well, I don't know if you realize it, that uh, at one point I was the supposed to be the regular inker on the X-Men back in, in the, in the uh, early 100s of the book. Dave Cochran and I were really close friends. And he, he wasn't necessarily a fan of Frank Cheramani thinking. And uh, uh, he convinced them to bring me on board. Uh, but it was a bi-monthly book at that time. And and also, I mean, all he had done is team books. I mean, I uh, at DC, I had done all-star comics. And the first book I did at Marvel was The Champions. And now here's another team book, which not, you know, none of the uh, uh, A-list guys want to do team books because there's just too many characters running around, right? And then there's Dave with all his incredibly creative costumes, which are also difficult to do, right? And and it's like, and struggling because the pay was terrible back then. And the book was only bi-monthly. I did one issue of it as the new inker. I think it was issue 105. And then I signed a contract with DC for a year and went over there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So I, I dropped the X-Men, which was really funny because that would have meant that then, you know, had I not done that, there would never be a John Byrne and Terry Austin, right? So, uh, uh, interestingly enough. Well, you mentioned that, and with uh, the X-Men title at the time, every single, you know, creator, Cockrum had his favorites in there, like a Nightcrawler. Byrne had, you know, he gravitated towards Wolverine. Were there any on the X-Men roster at the time that you would have gravitated towards that you, well, you know, had an but interest? that was my problem. When I got the book one day, right, and I started working on it, I, I'm like, the only person I recognized was Cyclops. I said, these aren't really the X-Men to me, you know, because I grew up with, you know, Iceman and the Angel and Marvel Girl and the Beast, right? And uh, that was kind of like uh, the thing. When uh, I got the, the opportunity to create X-Factor, uh, my thought was, well, well, I wanted to bring those original characters back. I mean, they've been floating around, like, in the Champions and stuff. I, you know, I got to do a couple of them in the Champions and things like that. But I'm saying, why not bring back the original group? You know, and, uh, uh, of course, to my uh, utter uh, uh, chagrin to this day, that was probably politically one of the worst things I could have ever done. I mean, it was a huge success. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But... It was the first X-Men book not done by the X department, right, the editorial department. And they made my life a living hell. They they rejected every plot that I put out. They would just, uh, uh, I mean, they editorially just 
had on me, you know, until I, it took the joy out uh, of doing it, you know. And as much as I loved working with, with, with guys and everything, I did five issues of it in the annual. And I said, you know, these guys are just making my life miserable. And the other rule that I always had was you know, when it stops being fun, don't do it. Because, you know, the pay wasn't great. So, you know, you might as well have a good time. And I always had a blast doing Iron Man, you know. Let's, let's face it, I was practically doing it for free anyway. You know, so, uh, it, but, you know, they just took the joy out of it. I mean, after after this, these constant editorial battles, just to get a story done, I, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, I'm done. And, I, you know, and then I got drafted to go do Secret Wars. You know, I am the only person in that war who was actually drafted. <laughs> well, any any highlights or... Or things you want to pass on when you got to do some work on? I know it was just a handful of issues of Amazing Spider-Man, or even working on those Hercules miniseries. Oh well, no, Herc was. Remember what I told you earlier that I was a writer who dabbled in art. Mm-hmm. My my intention all along was to to work and be a writer foremost. Story was everything to me. That's why you know every issue of Iron Man was co you know co plotted by me. If I didn't have a hand in the story, I didn't want to do it. You know, uh, so with Herc, that's why I left Iron Man to, to do Hercules, because when they, they announced that they were going to do the first limited series ever in, in the history of Marvel, I, I'm like, well, I want to get in on that, because this is a chance for me to write and draw my own stuff. And uh, uh, so I was absolutely sure that they were going to reject the idea, because, you know, the idea of a 5,000-year-old god basically drinking his way through the galaxy uh, and whoring his way through the galaxy was something I didn't think that they would go for, but sure enough, they did. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> oh, no, well, you know, I mean, the other thing was, too, I just came off, uh, you know, uh, what, doing 20-something grim issues of Iron Man, right? And all the books, I mean, uh, it was uh, the death of Jean Grey and Daredevil, you know, the whole death of Elektra. And the Marvel Universe was, I mean, we were obviously redefining the Marvel Universe for another generation, but it had gotten really dark, and I wanted to do something just stupid. You know, I was very influenced by Douglas Adams, you know, and yes. uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the idea of mixing that with Marvel uh, mythology uh, just kind of tickled me. And, uh, I mean, it was during the time of Star Wars, so it wasn't a bad idea anyway, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, I mean, Star Wars had just come out like a year before or whatever, so... Uh, when I started working on it, so uh, it was kind of, kind of all kind of came together pretty well. I was, uh, I was always imagining that I would just do this thing and, and you know and have some fun with it and move on, but it turned out to be a huge success. It spawned, you know, uh, it spawned another, it was another miniseries. I think it was the only one that ever had two uh, second series, uh, and then a graphic novel, and, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of like, uh, my response to the grim Marvel universe was to do something incredibly stupid. It's kind of the Bluto effect, right? It calls for an absolutely stupid and futile gesture on someone's part. And I was just the guy to do it. <laughs> and a good time was had by all. I think that Hercules oh, yeah. character is, uh, is one that, you know, that's what we've seen in, in Marvel comics at least. And he's. You know, yeah, there's still element. a rumor floating around that the uh, the cinematic universe is going to vi- visit Hercules at some point. You know, it's like uh, I would 
I, I hope I, I stay alive long enough for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be a blast. Who's your dream casting for the character? Oh, I don't care. I never think about that. I, I don't like actors, generally speaking. For but, some, you know, you remember, I spent I spent twelve years in Hollywood. Uh, I, I am over. I am not starstruck. Mm-hmm. Actor, you know, actors are very, for the most part, very difficult people. I will say though, I would love to have seen back in the nineteen nineties a Hercules movie starring the uh, actor who played Al Borland on uh, Home Improvement. He would have been perfect. He's got the beard and he's got the hair. He's good to go. Well, you know, none of that really matters. You know, when you're when you're transferring, and not believe me, you're talking to somebody who's had a lot of his work transferred to, to film and television. It's like uh, that transition has to be made in this way that your mother understands. You know, uh, I always joke to people that my mom never understood what I did for a living until she saw the first Iron Man film. And, you know, because my mom would never sit down and read a comic book. She'd never do that. She used to say, yeah, my, my son, he's a doodler. <laughs> I, I doodled for a living, you know? Uh, I mean, and it's like, uh, of course, you know, I got her respect once I bought her a house. Uh, but, uh, you know, once uh, during the Valiant days, you know, I got her respect from that. But, it, you know, it wasn't her thing. But watching a movie is very different. But, you know, when you're, when you're doing... When you're evolving a character for a mass market like like Marvel's was doing with the films, it's uh it's so important to do stuff that your mother would understand, because you find out that the general public doesn't have the uh what, what do you call it the um, uh, suspension of disbelief that that the average comic person does. You know, so uh, things have to be adapted in a certain way. That's why I've never gotten too hung up with the fact that. Oh, the costume isn't like it is in the comics, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think the first Iron Man movie is so true to the spirit of, of what I did. I mean, I know Hawk Osby personally, and he's a wonderful guy, great writer, and and uh, I, he was absolutely true to the spirit of what what we did. That's why I think that movie still is that one of the best Marvel movies ever done. Plus, David Maisel, the founder of Marvel Studios, is like one of my biggest fans in the whole world. I mean, his office is like a Bob Lee Norton. And by the way, you had mentioned earlier that you had gotten drafted into the uh, Secret War. Yeah, well, I was on contract at the time. And since I didn't have a regular book, basically it's like, guess what you're doing? We need a fill-in because my exec needs a break. You know, so I got drafted. And what was it like working on that one? Uh, I understood why Mike needed a break. <laughs> Another team book, man. Yeah. Tedious. It is so hard when you have you know that many characters running around. And Jim, bless his heart, is not the easiest guy to work with. You know, uh, you know, because Jim will decide. You know, I can do this better, and he will throw out whole pages and 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 ask you to be redone with no time mm-hmm. on the clock. You know, so. It was uh it, it was it was done but it was hard but you know I only I only drew two issues of it and uh, I did what four covers but they still I mean I signed millions of those things over the years I mean it's crazy you know how popular Secret Wars still is with, with so many people plus uh, you know they called on me to design the toys for for Mattel too so uh, that was interesting because I got to go to Mattel's little secret uh, workshop and 
all that kind of stuff, and that, that was a fun experience. Were there any of the uh, toys that were not, you know, that did not make it past the uh, sketch phase? I can't recall. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mr. Peabody. Oh. <laughs> well, one, one thing as well, by the way, you mentioned with the whole, you know, a team book can be a bit of a hassle because you're juggling so many different characters. What are some of like the little tips and tricks you would do while working on those titles to make it a little bit more, you know, uh, a much more expedited I don't experience? I think there's any tricks to it. I think you just have to basically, you just have to knuckle down and do it, you know. Uh, uh, you can't, you, you, wait, you can't like erase characters or anything, you know. Um, it's, uh, it, it's uh, you, you just have to learn how to, to put X amount of characters into one panel. It's not that easy. You just learn how to stack them, man, you know? Like any director, yeah, how can I get five people into the shot? You know, all of them in action or whatever. Um, it's not always the case, you know? I mean, uh, I'm saying where you, you, you have large group shots, you know, that you have to deal with. But uh, uh, it was, uh, again, I, I, it was that was such a blur because, like I said, I, I was just... You know, pulled out of my reality and jumped into uh, 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 that, as you know, to fill in, and that was uh, crazy. But, you know, strangely enough, that that, that Hulk cover I did, issue four, that, that thing was voted as one of the top 100 covers of all time. That's the one where he's holding up the uh, mountain, yes. right? Yes. I it, love it, that one. It was, it was voted. They did a poll, I guess, on CBR or whatever years ago, and it, it, I actually had five covers in the uh, top hundred of all time but that was uh one of the top ones there and, and it was so funny because at the time i when I, I drew it the first time it was too large and i remember jim said you know it doesn't really give yeah you, we can see the figures and stuff but it doesn't give you the feeling that he's uh holding up a mountain he goes pull way back and i go Are you really i go you serious let me just draw a, a, a cover that's nothing but rocks he goes yeah <laughs> I redid it, and sure enough, it worked. Wow! You know, so you said but, there uh, were five covers that were in the top 100 for you of yours. Yeah, yeah. What were the other ones? Well, I remember uh, it was Demon in a Bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that one. Um, oh, um, Spider-Man Moon Knight. Believe it or not, was uh, the the uh, Amazing Spider-Man. I think it was 220 or something with the coffin. Yeah. Coffins for Spider-Man. Uh, I'm trying to think the other two. I think the other two was just something I inked, but uh, um, still. I remember when I got first back into comics around uh, 2011, 2012. I went to a local comic shop, and he sold me a stack of 1980s Spider-Man comics, Spider-Man's comics. And you know, in there was sitting that cover because I was on a massive Moon Knight kick as well. Because you know, I would like dig through the dollar bins and find the uh, 80s Moon Knight yeah. and Kevich run. And I grabbed those, and I saw that cover, and there's so much. Like, it's it's one of those kind of covers. You look at it, and it grabs you immediately because you're seeing that. You're like, wait, why, why is the character in the coffin? What's going on? I have to read that. And it's a great way of grabbing the well, attention. Well, that, that was always uh, – what I miss about covers now because they all – all comic covers now look like the – look like Aurora model kit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's no story. And I always loved the fact that uh, when I was growing up, the cover tried to hook me. Is the first line of the story. You know? I mean, when you see the cover of the demon in a bottle, tell me you can't, you could resist cracking that open to find out what the hell's going on. Yep. Exactly. You know? I mean, 
I always loved that. I loved, you know, that, that it was the first line of your, your, your novel, you know, and it's like, it made you want to read it or whatever. And I mean, you know, by any standards, it wasn't even one of my best covers. But again, it's one of those things that resonate with people. You never know. You just never know what's going to resonate with people. Uh, you just do you do your job to the best of your ability, and you know, and, and I hope that you're you're entertaining and you reach a high level of mediocrity. And, and you know, and, and people decide. Nowadays, Bob, what do we find you uh, up to, working on, or looking forward to doing? I well, since the pandemic, I was in Dubai, in the Middle East, uh, working there in uh, the film industry uh, and uh, but when the the, the um, when the pandemic happened I, I flew back here so I, you know I've been locked in my apartment for two years <laughs> uh, which has not been fun but actually we are going back into production on my first feature film uh, a movie called the helix I have my own production company called box monkey pictures and uh, we've just made it. We're, we're in the process of making a deal. I can't say anything now, but it's with one of the streaming services. So it's it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a large budget for a streaming service. Okay, and um, it's the first in what would be a contained universe. Uh, it, is, it is science fiction. It's not. It's it's adult science fiction. You know, like uh, uh, like Arrival or one of those. It's not. It's not like uh, superhero stuff. Okay. But um, it, was, it, it was a very intense story that I wrote years ago when I was working in Hollywood as a spec script, uh, when I was working for Edward James almost, actually. Um, so, um, you know, the rights reverted back to me, so I'm, produ- you know, along with some partners, I'm making this movie myself. We're going to be filming in Sweden, hopefully by the spring. Uh, we're just now getting to the contract stages on that. So that keeps me kind of busy. You know, during the pandemic, I was just going back to doing commissions and doing commission art, you know, Uh, which was great fun because what I, you know, I wanted to spend the time to to improve my craft because one of the things I did at Valiant was, you know, I used to teach, you know, new colors, how to watercolor, right? Although I never had done it myself, you know, Mm. it's one of those things where, you know, it's like being a music teacher, but never having actually played in an orchestra. Uh, I understood color. I just never actually sat down and did it. So my daughter, who was a Valiant alum, uh, she was a you know uh, um, a veteran of uh, uh, Valiant comics. She used to color Shadow Man over Bob Hall over there. Um, I had my daughter teach me how to watercolor. So uh, I've actually uh, in the last year been offering like uh, you know doing doing commissions in full color. Uh, so I spent the time actually teaching myself something. I think also uh, of, of some recent memory, and maybe not very recent, but I think I'd seen some Facebook postings of other works that maybe were alternate versions or the unfinished versions, just the pencilized of notably Iron Man, if not others. Well, I'm, I'm con- I post every day. I mean, I try to treat my... I don't put my personal stuff up, like what I had for lunch. I don't have pictures of sandwiches or my dog or anything up there. Uh, I, I keep my family and girlfriends and everything else out, out of my Facebook life. My, 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 my social media life is pretty much just, you know, entertainment. It's, just, it's commercial stuff, you know. Uh, uh, 
the commissions I've done, the experiments I've done, things that people have never seen before that, you know, I, I find a file of some, some old page that never got printed or something like that. And, I, you know, I, I, yeah, so I, I try to, yeah, it's kind of like an alternate history of uh, my career uh, on my social media pages. But uh, a lot of times I'm just posting the stuff I'm doing right now, you know, because like I said, uh, just sitting since it, there's not much I can do. I won't do any cons until they get the pandemic under control. So, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of personal appearances and stuff. So, yeah, so now I'm going to get back to work on the film. So uh, I'll probably be over in Sweden for the ne- uh, in the spring for at least three four months while we're doing production and post-production on it uh, as the writer i have to be there every day so um that's exciting you know finally you know 11 years of work trying to get this thing made we're finally going to get it made so also bob by the way you said you don't post it on your facebook or anything but what did you have for uh, lunch today uh actually i had pho well the reason why because you know when uh, you guys wrote me earlier today and said, you know, 5.30. I said, well, I could be 5.30 because it was my granddaughter's birthday. And every year we have this, this annual mall crawl where she gets 90 minutes, no no spending limit. But, she, you know, there's caveats to it, but she gets to run from store to store and buy whatever she wants to buy. And she's a bit of a fashionista. She's 14 now. Uh-oh. So uh, the mall crawl went long today, but we were since we were there, they had a – so I had pho for lunch, which, as you know, is a uh, a Vietnamese noodle soup. Uh, well, I do now. Okay. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, happy birthday to her. All right. Well, you know, uh, Madeline, she's a she's the she's the joy of my life, without a doubt. She's she's the only one that takes after me. It's so strange, and, and drives her mother and father nuts. <laughs> You know, uh, she's an art. She's an incredible artist. I mean, better. I mean, she's. I look at her stuff, and I'm like jealous. At eleven, I mean, at fourteen years old, she's better than I was at fourteen. You know, um, she has potential to be an incredible artist. She's very manga esque, though. She's into that sort of thing because you know, Kiara we live in. It's funny but, because uh, like a lot of the uh, manga stuff is it is getting heavily you know big into the mainstream. It's been doing that you know. Year oh, yeah. by year. Well, you know, I, I God, uh, you go to Tokyo. Uh, I was in Tokyo what three years ago, and it was like it's incredible. You go to the the comic shop stores there, and I mean, it's just it's just the sheer volume of comics being created over there is just staggering, staggering. And you know, like you it's, know? it's funny. Like, are there any like certain kinds that you've you know read yourself? Uh, no, I haven't. You know. Uh, I'm not a fan of the genre per se, uh, so uh, you know. I and again, I don't look at comics as entertainment. That's why uh, after Dicky told me to get rid of my comic book collection, I became a football fanatic. I decided I was going to get into the sport. So, football has been my hobby. You know, uh, so this is an obvious great weekend for me. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> well, let's face it. Do you guys are you guys uh, uh, football fans at all? A bit. Last week we weekend was some of the greatest football I ever played. I mean, uh, every single game was like uh, not boring. You know, uh, 
sometimes you know they're incredibly lopsided or whatever. Uh, but uh, this has been a great year for playoff. So um, uh, it's like, uh, unfortunately, like I said, growing up in Indiana before the Colts got there, my first football experience was uh, watching Super Bowl three with Joe Namath. So I, I decided to be a Jets fan, which was probably the first sports mistake I ever made in my life. Because uh, it's been downhill since then. I mean, but myself. You, you uh, know, you stay loyal to your team, right? Myself, I'm not really much of a football person, although I do love making fun of uh, Tom Brady just to bust my best friend's balls. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't like Tom Brady either, so that's fine. But he's, I think he's going to retire anyway. So, uh, it's a heck of a New place. Yorker most of my life. You, you automatically hate all Boston teams. You know, that's just yeah. how the way it goes. Uh, you know, so. Uh, uh, Having contempt for the Patriots is just something that's inbred in most of us that live in the city, you know. There are three, <laughs> there are three certainties in life, death taxes and the uh, Patriots just being just being terrible. Yeah, I know. I, you just get sick of seeing them in the Super Bowl. You just want somebody else, yes. Uh, so, well, I was uh, going to add, that, that was just a great place for you to start was with Namath and the, the what the Super Bowl three. Um, and on the other side of the coin, my wife, well, through association, my wife being the fan, she's the New York Giants. Oh, okay, well. They've had some good years, but they, they're they're right up there with the Jets now. I, I hear yeah, you. I mean, oh, yeah, New York, being a New York football team, just the suckage is just part of the game now. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, what I'm saying is that's that's I had to turn my hobby somewhere, and so you know, I got became I, I, I just stick to football. I don't do basketball or hockey or any other things because you know I don't want to be one of those guys that just spends his entire life watching watching television. Okay. Mm. So I lived it. Plus, when my mom was still alive, my mom was a country girl. You know, grew up in the Depression, the youngest of thirteen children, on a tobacco farm in in Kentucky. So my mom, she only had a third grade education. She worked like a dog to raise five of us by herself, you know, her whole life. And I always had trouble communicating with her. She just did not understand what I did for a living, and you know. Why I would live in New York City? <laughs> I know these things. But what I did find out was that we shared a common uh, uh, enthusiasm for football. My mom loved football, college and pros. And so through the years, through the decades, Sundays, Saturdays and Sundays, my mom would be on the phone with me all weekend. You know, we would just, you know, because we, we, we would just call, you know, sometimes we watch the same game and uh, with the phone on that kind of thing like that. Uh, I, when I went to visit her, we would just spend the whole weekend watching games and stuff. But that's how I bonded with her. It was the only way. I mean, she passed away last year, but uh, at 95. So she oh, had, bless her. Yeah, she had a pretty decent life. But that's why watching football is a little sad for me now because we kind of expect mom to call at any minute, yeah. you know. But uh, it was also a way for me to bond with her. So that's, that was part of my enthusiasm for the game. And it replaced my collecting comics. And the thing is, though, in regards to being a creator, you know, it's good to be able to just get out of being stuck in one bubble, you know, as opposed to like, hey, it's comics, it's comics, 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 you know, you want to be able well, to. No, I, I, as I told you guys, I spent I spent 12 years in Hollywood. I, you know, I, I left. Um, I went out to work on the first Iron Man movie and stayed. And it was a 2000. I went out in 2008 to work on uh, uh, Iron Man one. And just, I decided to stay. And, uh, you know, I worked out there doing a variety of things 
for, like you said, until uh, 2016 when I moved back here to be with my grandchildren. You know, I realized I was missing their child. Plus, uh, at that point, I, re- I was telecommuting more than anything anyway, so I didn't really, I realized six months had gone by and I was actually attend- physically attending a meeting anymore. So uh, living in L.A., which is, by, by the way, not recommended, mm-hmm. um, it was uh, especially if you're a New Yorker. It is the antithesis of New York. Would you say Randy Newman was full of shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he can he can have it. I mean, I miss my friends and I miss the food. Otherwise, you can take LA and yeah. I, I mean, I have no use for it whatsoever. Uh, I mean, I lived what uh, twelve miles from the LAX. I used to give myself three hours to get to the airport. Oof. Yeah, it's, it's just insane, you know. And but. Uh, uh, the time I spent transferring what I had done from comics to film was invaluable to me. I mean, again, and uh, just like with Dick Giordano, it, it almost became a, a mentor to me and, and taught me so much. I went to work with him and his son, Michael, in their production company uh, after Iron Man 2. And uh, it was like uh, Eddie taught me so much about how to translate from you know doing comics to films because it's not... People think it's, it's it's almost the same thing, but still pictures. It's nothing to be further from the truth. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. And Eddie taught me economy. He taught me nuance, things like that that you really can't do in a comic. But uh, you know, I, the difference is too in a comic. I can tell the, the history of Galactus in twenty-two pages, and in a movie, it would take four hours. Mm. You know. The time becomes a factor, which time, there is no time in comics. You know, the time to move from panel to panel and how much time skips from panel to panel is really depending on the storyteller. But in film, it's a different matter entirely. Well, with that, Bob, going out to to Hollywood to work on the first Iron Man movie, did you go into it with any thought of, uh, all right, let's see how long this takes to do, or could I see myself doing this more than just for this film, if you recall? Oh, yeah. No, the point is, I listen after after Valiant, you know, uh, I'm you know where well, I said I was I co-owner of a company, right? I mean, I I there's were no more mountains for me to climb in comics. People keep asking, why don't you go back to comics? Well, one, the pay is terrible. Mm-hmm. Two, there's no more royalties anymore like they used to be. Uh, and, and three, it's like, what could I do that I haven't already done? You know, I mean, I've done, okay, I have over 6,500 comic book credits to my name. 6,500. Okay? I'm letting that sink in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's from the comic book database, all right? And it doesn't even have Cheezosaurus Rex in there, okay? <laughs> they're, they're risking a few things, I guess. So, I mean, there's, I, you know, I've owned two comic book companies. There's really nothing left for me to do that hasn't I haven't already done. So to me, Hollywood was the next step, right? Making characters who move and talk and don't wear their underwear on the outside. You know, I mean, it's like it was for me a logical progression. Comics are a game for the young, not to quote uh, Captain Kirk or to paraphrase him. It really is. It's, it's a game for younger men, you know. And when, you know, back when money didn't matter to me so much. And, you know, I had all the time in the world. Comics was a, a hell of a lot of fun. But, you know, as an adult looking at it, it's like, it's not, it's, you know, it's not a good business. 
model. <laughs> it really isn't. You know, I mean, the, uh, I needed to I needed to move on. I needed something that was more of a challenge, and Hollywood pro- provided me an enormous challenge. I worked as a, a script doctor. I worked did uh, production design. I did character design. Uh, uh, I did a ton of uh, different things. Learned a whole bunch. And more, more than anything, I learned the language and customs of working in Hollywood, you know, because it, it has a language and, and uh, socialization all its own. You know, basically you learn to speak bullshit fluently. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, again, okay. first thing I did when I got out there after the first year was I bought an erasable calendar because nobody can ever keep their appointments. Uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing place. I would think that uh, with overtime and stuff, and once things they get to become a more regular thing, that you will uh, go back to doing appearances, conventions, and and perhaps besides getting some kind of compensation, uh, you'll see a little bit of the uh, you'll get some gratification maybe from from the fans and and some reciprocation of the. Oh well, no, the fan, my fans have been great. I mean, they've stuck with me over forty five years. You know, uh, I have no no gripes about my fans whatsoever, and they're still they're still quite present on social media and everything. Uh, the Comic-Cons, if I go out to Comic-Cons in the future, it'll be to promote my film or films. You know, because, uh, you know, uh, hopefully this is a, the first in a series of projects that I'm going to do with this particular Swedish production company um, that'll be on streaming services that I can't mention and blah, 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 blah. Mm. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I go to cons to promote that stuff or whatever. I mean, I, I love love meeting the fans and all that sort of thing. It's just I don't want them giving me, like, fatal, you know, disease or whatever. I'm, I'm a little prone to respiratory infections because, I mean, every, you know, con crud, you know, I, I would get it every year. I mean, I'd do 15, 17 cons a year, and and I, I, I guarantee you I'd come back from at least a couple of them sicker than a dog, mm. right? So, uh, um I, my my least favorite thing about conventions, yeah, is the con crud as well as the uh, lighter wallet. You know, well, yeah, and, and not only that, but I'm doing them globally. I'm all over, I'm all over the, all over the world doing these things. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, I got sick in France one year. I mean, where I almost died. It was like crazy. Um, so uh, uh, it's like now with almost a guarantee that you're going to get sick. <laughs> Because I'm not a spring chicken anymore either. I just I can't find any con that's worth me risking my life over, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wait till the pandemic kind of dies down a little more before I ever do these again. Just because, uh, you know, again, it's, it's it's just not worth it, you know. Uh, but thank goodness, uh, like you said, I have social media and a ton of followers there, and we communicate every day. So um, well, I don't know. I don't know what we did before cell phones and social media, right? You know. <laughs> so now, before we wrap this up, by the way, you just mentioned uh, social media. First off, Bob, thank you for doing the show today. Oh, my, my pleasure. And how can people get a hold of you on social media? Well, I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, ignore the names because they were put there. Uh, when I first went to Hollywood, I was being represented by WME, and they gave me an agent. Uh, basically to write my uh, uh, social media stuff, but I couldn't stand it because the guy couldn't write. <laughs> but so I'm on uh, I'm on uh, Instagram as comic legend Bob Layton. Oh my God, which I would never call myself. Right. 
Uh, I am, uh, I think, Bob Layton 7 on, uh, on uh, Facebook. And uh, I'm probably the only Bob, I mean, look, Bob Layton. If you go to my website, BobLayton.com, there are links to all of it there, too, as well. Uh, you can also go to Box Monkey Pictures, my, my production company's website, uh, BoxMonkeyPictures.com or BobLayton.com, either one. But uh, I'm always out there. Well, Bob, it's not like the title doesn't fit of legend. I mean, you know, somebody's got to well, do I it. I didn't write it, so nobody, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself that. Okay? No, I get it, but Reed Richards did, as immodest as it may sound. What the hell? Well, yeah, I, yeah, but I, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not, yeah. you know. Uh, I do want to state for the record, by the way, I'm currently looking through your Instagram. I just gave, or actually, I've followed you for a while, and I love that uh, semi-recent uh, Iron Man variant you made with the uh, background that looks like the Arc Reactor. That is incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the blank cover? Uh, you, yeah. I, I, that's what I'm saying. Now, I don't have to worry about a high level of mediocrity. That's the other great thing about doing commissions since uh, I've been locked, locked up since the pandemic. Because I, I, I don't have to, I can take my time. And uh, the, I, everybody comments. Not everybody, but a lot of people comment. It's like, you know, your work's gotten so much better over the last few years. And it's like you're finally seeing what I'm capable of doing when I don't have to rush things, you know. Uh, and I'm enjoying it. Now I'm drawing for the pure joy of it, you know, and the money, of course. But I'm saying, the, but I, I also, I'm, because I say no to a lot of them. Too. A lot of times they come up with like really incredibly stupid things. And I'll say, I know I don't, I don't want to do that. Mm. Uh, but uh, the fact that I can just do stuff just for the sheer joy of it and take my time is, is very gratifying. So now you're kind of seeing me being me, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's fun. And again, in the, in these, uh, golden years of my life, I, I should be having fun, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it goes without saying on behalf of the both of us, we greatly appreciate all you've done throughout all the works and all the information you've shared with us. And, uh, you know, we are humbled in a sense. Uh-oh. Well, again, thank you guys. It's actually been a lot of fun. It went by very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so have me back sometime. We'll do it again. Absolutely. Oh, we got that on tape. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much. Now, uh, also before we go, be sure to follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. Eddie, you are? On Instagram at Eddie9193. And, of course, the one that started it all, Facebook. Look for Eddie Wilson, the guy in the sunglasses, and there I am. And also, uh, collectively, we are on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Bob Layton. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! <laughs>